Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On this week's Science Revolution, is a drug maker sitting on a possible COVID-19 cure just due to greed? Dr. Stephen Anstrop, chief scientist for Polar Bears International, is here. Could polar bears be lost by 2100? Food and Water Watch's Tony Corbo dissects Cory Booker's bill to protect meatpackers and why it's important. In Geeky Science, we'll talk about why the coronavirus vaccine may not work well for obese people and how that's a big problem. And lastly, Michelle Obama speaks about anxiety during the pandemic and what we can all do. There's something hinky going on with Gilead, this drug manufacturing company. This is the company that brought out remdesivir, which is being used right now with COVID patients all across the country. They're charging between $2,300 and $3,100 for a five-day course of remdesivir. It's very profitable. They're going to probably make $3 billion this year off this drug. But it turns out that there's another drug that Gilead developed. It's called GS441524. And it's very similar to remdesivir, and it appears to be more effective. It has demonstrated market effectiveness and safety in animal studies. In cultured cells, it's actually superior to remdesivir. It enters lung cells and is almost instantly converted into its active form that halts reproduction of the virus. It's a smaller molecule and it's more water-soluble than remdesivir, so it doesn't need to be injected. It could be taken as a pill or it could be inhaled. It's substantially easier to manufacture. And in humans, when you give a human an injection of remdesivir, it converts into the substance in the body, this GS441524. So if it's a better drug than remdesivir, why isn't Gilead making it available? Well, it turns out that this drug was patented in 2010 for MERS. Both this drug and MERS were developed for MERS and remdesivir. But this was patented in 2010, whereas remdesivir was patented in 2015. So if Gilead brings out remdesivir, they have five years longer of having a patent, being able to sell the drug as a brand name at much higher prices. So we now have this watchdog group, Public Citizen. Ralph Nader started this group back in the 70s, Public Citizen. Publicly asking, why is Gilead withholding a drug that appears to be more effective, cheaper to make, easier to administer? Why are they withholding this drug in order to promote the sales of remdesivir? Well, it looks like the reason that Gilead is doing this And this should raise all kinds of flags and feeds into my question of what do we do going forward to try to put America back together again. It looks like Gilead may be doing this because remdesivir will be more profitable because its patent is five years more recent. And so they'll be able to sell it for a longer period of time at the higher patent medicine prices as opposed to it going generic and becoming less expensive.
And if that's the case, and Public Citizen is trying to find this out through legal processes and lawsuits and things, and basically trying to shame Gilead into bringing this drug out, if this is the case, it is an absolute indictment of our for-profit healthcare system here in the United States. That would be unconscionable. So Michelle Obama, this is fascinating. She has a podcast, and in her podcast, she said that she is, quote, dealing with some form of low-grade depression. It's interesting. Louise and I talk about this frequently. You know, our moods, the whole sense of what's going on. Reality has shifted. We haven't, we haven't been able to hug anybody other than each other since March 10th. And... It's life-changing, and it's sinking into a lot of people. There was a fascinating piece, I believe, it was in the New York Times about how reports of depression and anxiety and anxiety disorders are going through the roof right now. Because, first of all, there's a disease out there that has the capacity to kill you or your children or your parents. And it's invisible. And You've got a president who seems hell-bent for leather on trying to infect as many Americans as possible. That produces anxiety. You've got 25 million people who don't have jobs right now, and the Republicans are dithering about whether or not, you know, if another Republican went on TV this morning and said, oh, $600 a week, that's too much money. We can't, we can't give people that much money. They won't go to work. Well, they're looking for work anyway. You know, they would much rather have work. But, you know, you combine all this stuff, and this is what Michelle Obama said. She said, I don't think I'm unusual in that. But I'd be remiss to say that part of this depression is also the result, and this is where it goes way beyond the two things that I just pointed out, you know, hiding out from a disease and having lost your source of income. Back to Michelle Obama, she says, I'd be remiss to say that part of this depression is also the result of what we're seeing in terms of the protests, the continued racial unrest that has plagued this country since its birth. I have to say that waking up to the news, Waking up to how this administration has or has not responded. Waking up to yet another story of a black man or a black person somehow being dehumanized or hurt or killed or falsely accused of something. It is exhausting. And it has led to a weight that I haven't felt in my life in a long while. She continued, uh, she said, I'm waking up in the middle of the night because I'm worrying about something. There's this heaviness. I try to make sure I get to a workout in. Although there have been periods throughout this quarantine where I've just felt too low. You know, I've gone through those emotional highs and lows that I think everybody feels, where you just don't feel yourself. And sometimes there's been a week or so where I had to surrender to that and just not be hard on myself. And say, you know what? You're just not feeling that treadmill right now. And then she goes on to say, I reach out to my family and to my friends, even at this time of quarantine. You know, I fought to continue to find a way to stay connected to the people in my life who bring me joy. And my girlfriends, my husband, my kids, it's the small things. Louise and I started back in March, I think. Maybe it was early April, doing a Zoom meeting every weekend. There's a particular time on a particular weekend day when, you know, I send a Zoom link out to our kids and to my three brothers and to my nephews and nieces and cousins. And I mean, you know, it just basically just goes out to everybody that's related to us directly, you know, kind of first and second order relatives and uh, inviting them to the Zoom meeting. And I've had, you know, people drop in from all over the country. And sometimes, you know, we just have a few people. Sometimes we have a large group, but it's like 
you know, staying in touch. It's so important. Louise and I have gotten in the habit of reminding each other, asking each other, you know, what are you grateful for today? I think gratitude is probably the single most powerful therapeutic element that anybody can bring into their lives. And the one that goes along with that, of course, is forgiveness. But right at this moment, I think that gratitude is the one we really need to be focusing on. Being with each other, reaching out to each other and to our friends and to our neighbor. One of my very best friends, he lives on the other side of the country. His wife is dying of cancer right now. And, you know, I'm trying to reach out to him every day or every other day at the very worst. And, you know, we talk on the phone regularly and and he's just going through hell between his wife literally, you know, dying of cancer in front of him and, you know, being locked up, essentially. I mean, this is just a really tough time. And we all need to be figuring out ways to reach out to other people, to remind ourselves what matters. We're seeing problems associated with mental illness exploding in the United States, and it makes perfect sense. It's totally understandable. And then you've got Donald Trump, whose solution to these kind of things is send in federal forces and let's have a riot so that he can get reelected, which just adds to the, oh my God, what's going on here? If you're feeling like it's a tough time, you're not alone. And we all need to be here for each other. In this week's Geeky Science. So I just got my New York Times climate newsletter email thing today, and they're reporting on a new study that was just published in Canada where they looked at six National Hockey League cities, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Montreal, New York, and Toronto. And in each one of those cities, we have records going back to the 1940s of high-quality backyard ice skating rinks. And this is where kids learn how to ice skate and they end up going into the National Hockey League. And so people keep good records. And I just want to share one sentence with you. In the winter of 1942-43, the first year of the original six era, that is, you know, these six cities of the National Hockey League, there were close to 60 days, 6-0, 60 days when Torontonians could expect high-quality skating conditions in backyard rinks. Last year there were about 20 days, from 60 days to 20 days. Something really big is happening all around the world. It is affecting our ecosystems, it is affecting our lives. And Dr. Stephen Amstrup is with us. He's the chief scientist at Polar Bears International, the co-author of another study that was recently published. You can find it at polarbearsinternational.org. His Twitter handle is at polarbears, great Twitter handle. Let's get into this. Dr. Amstrup, welcome to the program. Tell me about your study. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. And the example that you gave of the disappearance of hockey rinks in Toronto is really very relevant to the disappearance of the sea ice and its effect on polar bears. Polar bears are one of the very few species we have that depends on a habitat that literally melts as temperatures rise. And back in 2010, I projected, my colleagues and I projected in a paper in Nature, that we could lose about two-thirds of the world's polar bears by the middle of this century if we continued on an unmitigated greenhouse gas emissions path. What this study shows, the study that was released last Monday, 
shows not only that those general projections are true, but also establishes a timeline for when different populations within the global range of polar bears are likely to start to fail. And this is especially important to Canadians, where about two-thirds of the world's polar bears live in Canada. And in Manitoba, for example, the community of Churchill is considered the polar bear capital of the world. But the polar bears that live there are going to be among the first to wink out. This is a, a big deal. Is that because in the context of the Arctic Circle, that's a relatively southward community and therefore their ice is melting faster? Is that why? That's right. The areas where we projected we would see the earliest declines are in the southern portions of the polar bear range in Hudson Bay and Davis Strait. And then also in portions of the polar basin where currents continually take the sea ice as it's forming take it into the center of the polar basin. And in the summertime, what that means is that there's no ice along the shore like there used to be. Setting aside the aesthetic of fuzzy animals going extinct, what is the larger story here? What does this mean for our ecosystems and the future of humanity? Well, I think you put your finger on the most important point. My view is that polar bears and the message that they're conveying is important because of the impact that global warming that humans are creating, the impact that that's having on polar bears is coming to all of us. And you mentioned hockey rinks in Toronto. A colleague of mine and I did some projections looking at future temperatures in Toronto. And by the latter part of this century, the climate in Toronto is going to look like the current climate in Washington, D.C. There are no hockey Mm -hmm. rinks in Washington, D.C., and it's going to be a very... So when does the southern third of the United States start to look like Death Valley? I mean, you know, at what point does desertification, the growth of deserts, it's been happening in northern Africa now since the 1980s in ways that are very measurable. It's happening across Asia. I don't think that we've seen it in a big way in the Americas, or have we? Is this already setting in? Well, you know, I'm not as familiar with some of the models that might project what we might see in the southern tiers. Because you're looking at the northern Uh, part. I'm looking at polar bears. However, I have looked at some models forecasting, for example, that by the latter part of this century, Davis, California, central California, will have a climate more similar to that of Phoenix. Many people Mm -hmm. who saw me present that in a talk in Davis were very concerned because they didn't like that idea. And we are seeing a gradual situation where the arid climate of the West is gradually moving towards the Midwest at the same time that the more humid East is kind of building up more and more moisture. And so we're seeing in parts of the country much more significant rainfall events and in other parts of the country much more frequent and significant drought events. And these things have been projected by climate scientists for decades, and now they're coming to pass. Yeah. Dr. Stephen Anstrup, he is the chief scientist of Polar Bears International, the co-author of this new study. You can read the whole thing at polarbearsinternational.org. Dr. Anstrup, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you. And keep up the great work, please. Thanks for your attention to this. I appreciate it. My pleasure.
There's some interesting news having to do with protecting meatpacking workers and the whole coronavirus thing. Donald Trump, of course, famously did an executive order forcing people to go back into meatpacking factories and putting them at risk of COVID. And because of the executive order, their employers can't be held responsible if they get sick and die. And many of them have. And now Congress is trying to do something about this. Tony Corbo, the senior government affairs representative with Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website, is on the line with us. Tony, welcome back to the program. Tell us about this legislation that Cory Booker is promoting. Yeah, Senator Booker introduced a bill the other day, S-4338, that essentially would stop the line speed waivers that USDA has granted during the pandemic to 20 meat packers and poultry plants around the country so that they'd be able to increase their line speed. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. In the middle of a pandemic and you have workers getting sick and dying, you have inspectors getting sick and dying. This administration decided to grant line speed waivers so that they can increase the line speeds in these meat and poultry plants. And so what the bill does, and there's a companion bill in the House that was actually introduced two weeks ago by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, which is H.R. 7521. And essentially what these bills do is, number one, they revoke the line speed waivers that USDA has granted during the pandemic. It stops the implementation of the new swine slaughter inspection system that essentially deregulates inspection in the hog slaughter plants and increases the line speeds in those plants. It also requires that Government Accountability Office do a thorough investigation in terms of the actions that USDA, the Department of Labor, and Health and Human Services, which the Centers for Disease Control is part of, what their actions have been during the pandemic in these meat and poultry plants. So it's a fairly comprehensive bill. I mean, this is an incredible coalition that came around to promote this bill. It's backed by labor. It's backed by animal welfare groups and food safety groups. We're talking with Tony Corbo, the senior government affairs representative of Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Tony, what are the chances of this getting passed? I mean, it sounds to me like this is the kind of legislation, since it's taking on Trump head on, that Mitch McConnell will just ignore. Uh, well, I mean, we're putting we're putting a lot of pressure. We're putting a lot of pressure. There's negotiations going on in the next, you know, uh, on this next COVID relief bill, and we would like to see this part of the package. There's other <laughs> legislation that would require OSHA to issue an emergency rule to protect all frontline workers during the pandemic, giving them hazardous duty pay and have enforceable standards in these meatpacking plants so that there's social distancing and requirement that the employees get protective equipment. So we're in the mix here in terms of the discussions on this package. Do you have any so, Republicans on board, Tony? Well, in the House, actually, there, there, has, there is a Republican. There's Jeff Van Drew, who... Well, I'm talking about the Senate. If you don't have a half a dozen senators, uh, Republican senators, this thing is going to be toast. I know, well, I mean, we're trying to get some Republicans on there. We've, so we've, is this the sort of thing where if people were to call their senators now at 202-224-3121 and raise some hell, that there might be a chance? Yeah, I think that that would definitely help to reach out to some of those Republicans. So we're building support. We're going to ask our members uh, over the next few days to contact their respective members of Congress and senators, urging them to co-sponsor this legislation. 
Great. That number again is 202-224-3121. Tony Corbo with Food and Water Watch. Tony, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Great talking with you. All right. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Sponsoring the interview this week is... That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The October surprise that Donald Trump seems to be hoping for the most right now is having a virus vaccine, you know, prevent people from getting COVID-19. And there's a fascinating piece that Kaiser Health News published that should cause us all to scratch our heads and think for a moment. The headline is coronavirus vaccine likely won't work well for obese people. And that's a big problem. The estimates are that by election time, it might be a quarter million dead. So they point out in the article, Kaiser Health News, scientists know that vaccines that protect the public from influenza, hepatitis B, tetanus, and rabies are less effective in obese adults than in the general population. Now you dig into the article and you find that the reason for this, they say blood tests show that obese people experience a state of chronic inflammation seems to interfere with immune responses to vaccines, which probably is the mechanism that explains why vaccines don't work as well with obese people. You know, the original thinking was, hey, the larger body, maybe you need a little more virus or something, but it turns out even that doesn't work. And particularly they found this with the hepatitis B vaccine in 1985. This is when they first discovered this. Obese hospital employees who received the hep B vaccine showed a significant decline in protection 11 months later than the non-obese employees. And so 
They point out more than 107 million Americans are obese. And then when you look at who's being hospitalized in the United States, first of all, we learned from a Chinese study back in January that heavier patients, that the higher the body mass index was, the more likely the person was to be hospitalized or to die. And now they're suggesting when they look at the hospitalization numbers for Americans, that if your body mass index is 30 or more, now I think it has to be 40 to be obese. I'm not an expert on this and I'm not sure, but more than 42% of Americans have a body mass index of 30 or more. And that this is a significant risk factor for hospitalization and may well be a significant risk factor for the vaccine not working as well, according to this article in Kaiser Health News. There was another paper published in the International Journal of Obesity in 2017. They showed for the first time that vaccinated obese adults were twice as likely as adults of a healthy weight to develop influenza or flu-like illness. In other words, the vaccines are half as effective. Now, at least with vaccines for flu, And again, back in 1985, they found that they were more than less than half as effective with hepatitis B with obese hospital workers. So Donald Trump may think he's got the magic bullet that's going to solve all problems, but it's not that simple. I don't know how to say it beyond that. It's just not that simple. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.